1: I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. Today's episode of Looking Up is essential. It's essential because we're talking about how to cope with negative feelings and negative self-talk. And while we all experience this, and I think many of us could use some tools right about now. So many of us try to actively avoid unpleasant feelings, but what research tells us is that pushing those unwanted feelings away and attempting to avoid them altogether will only do more harm than good, leaving emotions suppressed and bottled up. My guest on today's episode of Looking Up is here to tell you why you shouldn't do that and how to process and how to More effectively cope with negative feelings. Dr. Joan Rosenberg is an expert psychologist, master clinician, trainer, and consultant, and you might have even seen her very successful TED talk on emotional mastery. It has nearly 2 million views. We're on the podcast today talking about just that and so much more emotional mastery, what is it, and how can we practice it, and what exactly the Rosenberg Reset Formula is. Joan describes it as one choice, eight feelings, and 90 seconds. Take a listen to learn all about how negative self-talk or self-thoughts is a distraction from unpleasant feelings, how confidence might be deeper than what you perceive it as, and how fear is defined. Tools, tips, and tangible ways in which you can actually shift mindset and change your life coming right up. Dr. Rosenberg, has there been a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life?
2: I would say probably from very early on, and that would take me back several years, but it was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl.
1: Mm.
2: So it's uh, the, the fact that someone could live in those kinds of circumstances and maintain the freedom of his own mind was, uh, was wonderful. So
1: so powerful. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank.
2: Uh, people think I'm really serious.
1: Mm. <laughs>
2: and, and, except I really love to laugh and, and uh, love to engage in kind of uh, quick witted repartee.
1: So Ooh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, three words to describe yourself as a teenager in your high school years.
2: Uh, I would say probably shy, awkward. Yeah what isn't a teen year without some measure of awkwardness and uh, curious
1: mm.
2: curious ah. lots of curiosity
1: and uh, when is the last time that you cried?
2: you know i in terms of thinking about that one, it's probably been uh, at least once a month since covid started mm. uh, for just i think just uh, being sensitive to the, kind of the, what the whole of humanity is going through and the recognizing certainly from the sheltering in place, the just absolute critical importance of face-to-face, heart-to-heart connection.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like so many of us have taken that for granted, obviously, because it was never something that most of us, um, some of us have had to, but collectively have had to Put a halt on. And so you really realize how much human connection is important, and you start to put into play, you know, all the research out that shows that we as humans are social creatures. We actually need to be. Yes, the give and the receive. Exactly. Okay. Without much thought, um, three things that have brought you joy today.
2: Today, uh, uh, waking up is always a joy. I I and I I suppose I wouldn't know if I didn't, but uh, <laughs> I, since I still know, waking up is is certainly a joy. You know, I I have different opportunities to serve, and and I actually will say serving individually, meaning working one on one, and also serving more collectively. So doing what we're doing today, both of the, both of those things bring me joy. So
1: I love that. So I want to just dive right in. I love your work, and I love how much of your work really has to do with this one notion that a lot of my work has to do with, and it's resiliency. And you talk a lot about emotional mastery, which I also am extremely passionate about. And I know for listeners out there that have heard me speak before or do follow along. I speak a lot, especially lately about this idea of toxic positivity and sort of glossing over always having to put a positive spin on something and this, the idea of not sort of avoiding tough emotions. Um, And those tough emotions are actually part of our resiliency and optimism building actually. And so I want to talk to you about emotional mastery I want I would love to hear from you what that exactly means and I also want to talk a little bit when you explain that about your childhood and kind of how your childhood and certain experiences that you've had that you can remember that really got you interested in emotional mastery and <laughs> catapulted I mean, all this
2: I mean from temperamentally as a kid I was I started out very very shy and sensitive. In fact, the, the phrase I, as an adult that I started to use is that I was so shy that I was Velcroed to the wall. If you think of wallflowers, I was just like Velcroed to the wall. So it it, t- it took energy and effort. And I have learnings along the way on that one too. In my thirties, I recognized what the deal with shyness was really, really was, but we can come to that later. But so there I was, shy, sensitive. I also started school at a very young age and then as a result of that, I was the youngest and smallest in my class.
0: Mm.
2: And and so there was this, this quality of not fitting in from the get-go. And so I felt different. I didn't feel like I fit in. And and it was just it, that script, if you will, was something I carried for a quite a long time. And I would I would look over to my peers and I'd kind of glance over to the side and and I'd see them and and they were laughing and they were together and they appeared so confident and self-assured, and that wasn't me. Mm. I didn't have that, and even if I wanted to go stand next to them, assuming that it was going to be rub off by osmosis, that was not going to happen, right? So, uh, and then through the course of it, I was also bullied. I could probably regale you with stories of the number of times that I would walk home from school, sit at the kitchen table with my mother. And she would try to soothe me from another day of having been kind of targeted. And so-
1: What age are we talking about here?
2: uh, We're talking in childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, monkey is the first thing that comes to mind in terms of, I I was a kid. I was, that would have been very early on, but then there's many things that followed from that. So anyway, it's, uh, you know, and, and giving the absence of emotional resources internally that I felt like I had at that time, obviously it was, it was quite painful. Mm. And so there I am in in the early part of my life. And the, the first question I'm wrestling with is, I don't have confidence. How does someone get that? Mm -hmm. How does someone develop confidence? So that was a question that started to percolate early on based on the whole range of my experiences. And then as I got into my adult life and certainly into my profession more directly, and I started early in the career, I was young when I started in the career. And the second question as I began to work with clients was, I, you know, I noticed that people struggled certainly with the way they thought, and that had a deep impact and a, many times a destructive impact, except what I found is that one's difficulty handling unpleasant feelings was even harder. So the second question for me became, what is it that made it so difficult for people to deal with or handle unpleasant feelings?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So those are the two kind of questions that that kind of percolated or I sat with and, and so worked together. How
1: can people develop confidence or how do we cultivate confidence and right. how or why are unpleasant feelings so difficult for us? To, to bear to bear yeah. let it yeah. work yeah. through like let alone that but just to bear
2: yeah right yep yep and it turns out that as as the time went on and certainly this we share a love of neuroscience mm-hmm. so I, I you could nerd out it I'll geek over it so <laughs> <laughs> yes. so what I found is uh, over time the answer to the second question about what made it so difficult for people to bear unpleasant feelings actually, for me, started, became the foundational answer for how one develops confidence.
1: Mm. Today's episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. During this period of time when we all have been at home so much more, I've really started to take stock of what kinds of things I was surrounding myself with at home. Not just like the big stuff, like furniture, but actually the everyday stuff. My household cleaning products, the candles I use, my shampoo, conditioner, hand soaps, sanitizing wipes, toilet paper, and even grocery items. Sustainable, eco-friendly, and safe have always been important to me when I look for home products. But it always bothered me that in some ways I was giving up on aesthetic. The colors and design of our everyday surroundings has a huge impact on our mental health. One of my favorite things about public goods is not just that they make clean, sustainable and affordable products, but that each one of their products has a simple, minimal, modern and calm aesthetic. You can find pretty much everything you need and it all looks good in your home. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, public goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place. They're committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. We worked out an awesome new deal just for looking up listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Plus, right now, receive your choice of either a free pack of bamboo straws or reusable food storage wraps with your order. You got nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com lookingup or use the code lookingup at checkout. That's dot com forward slash lookingup to receive $15 off your first order. So, I know you have said before you think sometimes confidence can be misdefined. How do you define confidence?
2: Confidence in my world is the, it's a different from the way others position it. Mm-hmm. It's the deep sense that you can handle the emotional outcome. And the key here is emotional outcome. Of whatever you face or whatever you pursue. Mm. So, the deep sense that you can handle the emotional outcome of whatever you face or whatever you pursue.
1: Which is so key because here you're talking about the emotional outcome, which could be something that feels like a positive outcome. And it also could be something that feels like a negative outcome because many of us have a tough time also dealing with. Positive outcomes. And those can be uncomfortable too. But so much of your definition of confidence is similar actually to my definition of an optimist, someone that is, you know, cultivating and sharpening their resiliency skills. So it's even like you may not know how, but you do know you have the power to sort of work through hardships and struggle. Or things that are less than ideal or feel uncomfortable or unpleasant. And right. yep, yeah, yep. that's Absolutely. so interesting. Yeah. So in order to have to have emotional mastery, is the key to that then really cultivating confidence and learning how to be more comfortable in less than ideal emotional feelings?
2: Sure. I mean, I think of I think of kind of two elements that uh, two big elements, and I'm sure there's much more that we can talk about that goes into this idea of emotional mastery. Mm-hmm. But think of it as certainly the capacity to be responsive as opposed to reactive. Mm-hmm. So there's all this emotional self-regulatory. Kind of self-regulation skills that we have. And, and so that we have the capacity to take something in. It doesn't disrupt us as we handle it. And we are able to sit back and not be explosive or shut down because we're experiencing something, but we can actually uh, stay present, feel what we're feeling, and then being able to actually respond. And, and my, the response piece becomes very important on my end and this actually comes out of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was bullied, uh, I never wanted to treat somebody the way I was treated. So, so much of my work is also centered around this idea of being positive, kind, and well-intended. So, it's not that you just have the capacity to be responsive, but you do it in a positive, kind, and well-intended manner. So, it's, it, that's, that's a crucial part of it. Uh, it's never with the intention to hurt someone. And the second part of it has to do with I think of one's ability to be attentive and actually handle not only what they're thinking, how they're thinking it, but also their, how they experience and express feeling and then how they manage, how they act in the world or their behavior. So to have emotional mastery means that people can work comfortably with those five or six different elements in addition to this idea of
1: self-regulation. When we talk about all of this and sort of in light of what we're going through right now, in order to really cultivate emotional resiliency during tough or really trying times, whether it's, you know, something that we're all going through right now, some people might argue that we're going through a collective time of trauma or some people that go through chronic illness um, or, extreme grief and loss oftentimes you know one of the tools i know that that is that we all talk about is this idea of a perspective shift and being able to look at the experience from a different perspective is that sort of a tool that you think is really helpful in those times or how would you recommend or or give Tools to people that are in these trying times, whether that is something that we're all going through right now, you know, this collective trauma of, of being in the middle of a pandemic and grief and loneliness, or even people that have gone through chronic illness, um, et cetera, or whatever the hardship is. What do you think is the most helpful thing um, for them to do in order to? cultivate emotional resiliency?
2: Well, you know what, there, for me, there's actually a, a fairly long list, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, but, I'll, but I'll break that down. I mean, it, 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 my immediate response to this uh, time centered around the cor- coronavirus, and I actually think that there's, at least in the United States, I think of four major kind of influences kind of all weaving together simultaneously. So so for me it's it's tied to both the coronavirus and the effect of that and our concerns about you know who gets sick how mm-hmm. it happens and then the effect the second is the economic downturn a third is social unrest and then yeah. a fourth is i think polit- some political instability and so so I, I actually think that we're weaving together at least those four influences
1: Absolutely and,
2: and the as a result, especially even if we start with just the first two, the combined uh, pandemic plus economic downturn, in my mind, this is a period of profound loss and grief. Mm-hmm. And uh, along with that, it's actually a time of, of significantly heightened sense of vulnerability mm-hmm. and, and I'm happy to kind of talk about those two, but um, yes. Do, does a perspective shift need to take place in order to be resilient? Uh, yes. And for me, the foundational aspect starts with something, I, again, I, I use this concept of emotional strength mm-hmm. and emotional strength for me has to do with being able to handle unpleasant feelings. Now, my work is specific to eight in particular, and I can speak to those or, or can talk about them more generally. But the, the notion that first, we're, we have the capacity to handle unpleasant feelings because we're going through experiences that are disappointing and frustrating and, and sad and make us angry and uh, you know a wide range. So we need to be able to handle that. Plus, the second part of emotional strength for me has to do with asking for help. Mm-hmm. So this idea that we stay well-connected to others and ask for help specifically I see as two major threads of resilience. Mm-hmm. Then there's a, a much longer list. But the other thing that, that I really want to highlight, depending on how much you want to dig into this, mm-hmm. is what I call resilient thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, resilient thinking involves asking resilient questions as well as holding resilient attitudes and beliefs. So the you know, like a resilient attitude and belief might be, I'm going to persevere mm-hmm. no matter what.
1: Right. I've right? been through struggle before and I was able to withstand it. And again, right. back to that optimistic way of thinking in how I define it, which is I may not know how, but I know I can and I will. Right, right,
2: right, right. Yeah,
1: yes. that's so true. And you you talk about these eight feelings and I feel like it's a good time to jump into the Rosenberg reset formula. I love that. It's got such a nice ring to it. You talk about one choice, eight yes. feelings, and 90 seconds. Please yes, share. Yes.
2: yes, absolutely. And and I have to credit my buddy um Jeff, who was the one that called it that during a, a talk that I gave. So it just kind of stuck. So I love it. So again, this is an answer to the question: what makes it so difficult to handle unpleasant feelings? And I needed to find a way, like in a shorthand way, if you will, to help people be able to do that and understand relatively quickly that they could actually lean into what felt unpleasant to them. And and so the the, the formula is one choice is awareness as opposed to avoidance. Yes. So awareness is to be open to and comfortable with as much of your moment-to-moment experience as as you can bear. It's you want to lean into the unpleasant feelings that are arising. So rather than running away Mm -hmm. or distracting, you want to lean into it. And so it's being in touch with, as aware of and in touch with as much of your moment-to-moment experience as possible. The avoidance piece we recognize through overeating. So Mm -hmm. food or social media or substance use or pornography or sex or shopping Mm -hmm. or the. actually I think I named like 35 different ways to distract in, in the 90 seconds book that I wrote. So, so what am I going to advocate? Obviously choosing into awareness. Mm -hmm. We want to, we want to set distraction off to the side. So that's the one choice is awareness. And the, the second is the eight feelings and the eight feelings are sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment and frustration. Now, oftentimes people will go, well, why those eight? And, you know, there's a whole heck of a lot more I'd throw in there. <laughs> and, and it's those eight for a particular reason. And, and really it's, it's those eight because they're the most common everyday spontaneous reactions to things not turning out the way that we want or the way we perceive we need. Right. So that's why the eight, and then and then the 90 seconds is really the method, if you will, this, for leaning into it. But mm-hmm. I don't, I really want people to understand that the, as much as the 90 seconds is important, this idea around that, it's really everything around my work. This, at least this aspect of my work is actually more centered around the eight feelings. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't want someone to be confused by it. But here's the, here's the deal in terms of what really allows us to lean in, in into these unpleasant feelings. And that is to have to know that when the neuroscience research came out, one of the first things that they started to really emphasize was the interconnectedness of our body and mind, our mm-hmm. body and brain. And that it's, we're one interconnected whole. We're not a separate being that just happens to have a brain here and a body there the body's actually representation of the brain. And it actually runs the course of our body. It's the brain and the the spinal cord. So it actually runs down the whole of our body. So the first piece is we're interconnected whole. The second is that actually the great majority of us come to know what we're feeling emotionally through bodily sensation. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, think, you know, the easiest is embarrassment. Most of us get kind of heat at the chest, into the neck, and then into the face. Now, someone else might see the redness, mm-hmm. but you are feeling the, the, the bodily sensation, if you will, mm-hmm. of the heat. Yes. Right? And, and then the 90 seconds piece, for years I was telling people to ride the wave, ride the wave, ride the wave, and little did I know that I was totally spot on, but the neuroscience again explains that. So, so what does that mean? So the, what that means is that when a feeling gets triggered, there's a rush of biochemicals into the bloodstream that activate those bodily sensations I mentioned and that flush out of the bloodstream in roughly 90 seconds. It was an observation made by Dr. Jill Maltie-Taylor who wrote a book called My Stroke of Insight. So I lay no claim to the 90 seconds. I'm just borrowing her observation and putting it in a method, if you will, to then lean into unpleasant feelings. So what's the most important thing to take from that? The key here is to understand that I think most of us want to experience the whole range of what we feel. Mm -hmm but we don't want to feel the bodily sensation that actually helps us know what we're feeling emotionally. And that's what we want to back away from. We want to get away from that as far as possible. So it's that discomfort of the bodily sensation. So if you have the knowledge that you can ride one or more, so it's not just one wave, but one or more short-lived bodily sensation waves, like you're surfing out in the ocean, mm-hmm. then you can actually lean into one or more of those eight unpleasant feelings. You do that, then you're on your way to emotional mastery.
1: I love this on so many different levels. Almost like I, I'm starting to, to realize in all my research, and especially as of lately, and and really also just from the guests on my podcast, this idea that oftentimes what we run away from or what we perceive or we define a as a negative emotion, um, and I, I have negative in the little quotation marks right now. Right. People can't right. see that. But um, you're right. It, it's not that it's negative. It's just that it's not comfortable. Right. And um, right. there's something really different about those two words, negative and uncomfortable. And oftentimes right. the uncomfortable piece like you said, the bodily sort of response, the the hot cheeks and right. the rapid heart rate or the sweaty palms, if you will, oftentimes yep. those can actually be a sign that our body is working. Oh, and totally, that it's 100%. a signal, right? A signal <laughs> yes. trying to help us know what we're feeling.
2: Exactly, exactly, 100%. And, and he, again, uh, along that line, what, what's so important here is that, first of all, I don't use the words negative or bad when I talk about unpleasant or uncomfortable feelings. In fact, I usually say they're uncomfortable, unsettling, unpleasant, unsomething, <laughs> but they're not bad or negative. So toss bad or negative. The truth of the matter is we have a, a predisposition and what, they, what p- people in psychology call a negative bias, right. and it's for the purpose of survival. So what's the key here are those unpleasant feelings actually exist to protect us. They have a protective nature to them. So if you dismiss them, then you're actually going to dismiss the very feelings that are there to protect you. And as a result, you'll actually feel more vulnerable, not less. So my thing is absolutely trust the signal
1: and sometimes of course it's all on a continuum but sometimes the uncomfortable is just because maybe we from a social aspect have perceived it to be as something that is uncomfortable but it's actually not that uncomfortable and it's made, like it, it almost it makes me think of it of a, another you know interview i was doing on stress and uh-huh. we were equating it in the conversation to sort of like similar to this, some of these body bodily reactions, it's similar to hunger. You know, you feel that that thing, pit in your stomach that is telling you you're hungry. And if you really stopped and thought about it, you'd be like, that feeling's kind of uncomfortable, actually. It's not like a pleasurable feeling, but we don't look at it and say, oh my God, this is so negative. We look at it and say, oh, I, I think I'm hungry. I need to protect myself. I, I think I'm going to eat something. And right. so it can be similar if we change our perspective on That's some of her these. Her. And of course, this is all on a continuum. There are some negative emotions that feel really bad and they don't go away and they are really bad and we do need to, to meet them. But either way, if they are on the continuum of over here or over here, either way, the science says that in order to get through them, we have to lean into them. And yes. regardless of whether they're here on the continuum or here, avoiding right. them is not what we do.
2: Right. So, and let me let me go back because you're you're touching on this continuum aspect, and I and I don't want to be misleading for anybody. When somebody's been through something that's been tragic or traumatic, that actually encodes differently in the brain, and and takes a, a different approaches to actually help work through. Mm. But the focus that I'm really want to emphasize here is that. What I'm talking about it has to do with the everydayness yes. of the feelings. Yes. And, and might, they, might being able to work with them have a, an, a, a positive impact in terms of resolving some of the trauma? Mm-hmm. Yes. But I, I don't make any assumptions about this being an approach to deal directly with trauma. Right. It's with an understanding, of course because trauma and tragedy encodes differently in the brain. So that's, I mean, that's, that's really, I want to make sure that that that's made known to everybody.
1: I first heard about Murad skincare because I would see the cleansers and creams on my mom's bathroom counter when I was a little girl. I'm not just a fan of the brand, but I'm also honored to be on their newly appointed advisory council. Today's episode is brought to you by Murad skincare. This brand was founded in 1989 by dermatologist Dr. Howard Murad, and it's the first modern doctor brand of clinical skincare products, setting a new standard for high-performance skincare. For more than 30 years, Murad has been committed to developing clinically proven, cruelty-free products that meet the meticulous standards for safety, efficacy, and care you'd expect from a doctor and an expert. What I love about the Murad brand is that they have always placed significance on whole body wellness, inclusive of skincare. And Dr. Murad has spent his entire career all about helping his patients conquer what he calls cultural stress, which is basically the stress of modern living to help people lead a happier, healthier life. Murad skincare is always coming out with the most innovative products, and they just launched the Vita C triple exfoliating facial. It's basically where Murad is bringing the results of a microdermabrasion facial straight to your home. The product uses gold stabilized vitamin C, which has 55% more antioxidant power than traditional vitamin C, which packs in the punch to give you brighter, more even toned, healthier looking skin in just two weeks. I love that there's no guessing here. The product actually changes color from orange to white to let you know when you should stop scrubbing. The Vita C facial is now available on murad.com. Murad also offers a complete collection catering to a variety of different skin solutions such as acne and blemish, oil control, fine lines and wrinkles, brightening and uneven tone, sensitive skin, pores, lifting and firming, hydration and more. To find the best regimen for you, take Murad's skin quiz at www.murad.com/skin-quiz. New customers to Murad.com can receive 20% off their first order. To learn more and stay up to date with the brand, visit www.murad.com or follow the brand on Instagram at Murad Skincare. So with this formula at place and now having sort of it, I don't want to say under your belt, because I'm sure you work towards it every single day. Like we all, you know, this is a lifestyle. This is a mindset daily, shift. Daily Yeah. Right. Do you think that if you knew this formula and had practiced it during those times when you were a child and had some of those really uncomfortable feelings, would it have helped?
2: Oh, I'm sure. Yes, mm-hmm. no question. No question. Yes, it would have made a big difference. I would have also understood that it wasn't me. Really, that when right. it's not that when somebody's being attacked and they're not doing anything to engender the attack, it's not about the person that's the
1: getting attacked,
2: right?
1: And what so, about people that so they sit with the the ninety seconds? Yes, because um, I know listeners are going to have this question. They sit with the ninety seconds, and sometimes they get through that ninety seconds, and they're able to look at that feeling or emotion and say, okay almost like, thanks body. You just helped me uncover that this is how I'm feeling and I have a label to it now. And this is me leaning into it. What about, are there circumstances and scenarios? And maybe this is sort of what you were talking about before on the continuum, but where that 90 seconds actually lasts a lot longer than 90 seconds and they can't.
2: Yeah. So let me, let me actually tackle both pieces of it. The, The thing that I recommend is when somebody starts to Experience whatever the feeling is. Take take some deep breaths. Lean in, Mm -hmm. and one of the one of the easiest ways to lean into something is actually to breathe more slowly and deeply. Because and because the the subtle other way to distract here is to swallow. It's to stop breathing, Mm -hmm. where it's to tighten up Mm because you'll shut down. You'll you'll shut down the reaction. All three of those ways. So the thing I want you to do is breathe into the experience, and that hopefully will give you enough pause that then you can identify what you're feeling, spend some time asking other questions. It's like, oh, what triggered this? Mm-hmm. You know, what set, what set me off? And see if you can make the connection to whatever that, the thing or thing, things were, situation, event, that kind of you were reacting to. And, and if you have a lot more time and you really want to pause and reflect, then you can actually say, huh, is this connected to anything else? Or is there a pattern to this? And then you can deepen your understanding. And so what do you do with all that information as as you're starting to kind of filter it in that pause of the 60 to 90 seconds? And by the way, most feelings don't last that long, but Mm -hmm. I'll give you the range. And what you can start to do is to go, oh, uh, is there a decision that Mm -hmm. I need to make based on what I'm experiencing? Mm-hmm. do I need to express myself to, to anybody based on what I'm experiencing, or do I need to take some kind of an action?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it, there's actually a way then to make use of what you're feeling by not only thinking through it, but then seeing filtering a, yet another way to determine whether a decision, expressing yourself, or an action is appropriate. So that's that's kind of one side of it. The other side of it goes to the kind of, the, if you will, to the trauma side. And, you know, what I wrote, again, in the 90 Seconds book, that I, there's at least three ways that I've identified that, that lead us to believe that feelings linger.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, because somebody with 90 seconds, what are you nuts? You mm-hmm. know, that's, what about the two months I was lying in bed, right? And the truth of the matter is the feeling itself, the bodily sensation wave itself is short lived.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What is not so short lived is how and what we think. Yes. So the truth is, the more you repeat the same thought, or the more you repeat a given memory, right. then everything associated with that thought or memory is going to come up with it. So if there are certain feelings that you are experiencing in a given situation, and breakups are classic, right? Right. Uh, a, a relationship breakup is cl- where we just keep on repeating the same thought over then what we're doing is, is we're activating the same kind of uh, approximate neural pattern yes and as a result it seems like the feeling just keeps going
1: on and on and on that is so true and we all we actually actively start seeking out other things in our present moment and in our future moments that match it and so yes. it just, and it's, it's kind of similar to that, you know, totally benign example. But if you're constantly thinking about a certain color, like if I ask my clients sometimes to illustrate this, I'll be like, think about red shirts. And then the next day, I'm just like, think about red shirts. And they see red shirts everywhere. Not because I've paid everyone around them to wear red shirts, but it's literally what they are attuned to. Our brains have a limited attentional capacity. And so our thoughts are then sort of, we're picking out evidence in our everyday life to match those because our brain likes to be true. So that's so true. And it works for, it is probably one of the biggest reasons why things feel like they last forever. You're
2: right. Right. Yeah. There's two, there's two other reasons that I talk about. One has to do with this idea of what's known in the, in psychology as thought suppression. Mm -hmm. It's the effort to try not to think about something. Right. Um, right. So please don't think, of, you know, don't think of a white bear. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the truth is, is that you have to think about the thing in order to try not to think exactly. about it. Exactly. And so it, that never works. Uh, and in fact, what they found is that it's paradoxical and it actually makes you think it more. So then you have that quality of lingering. And and here's the other thing that is so crucial from my, again, my whole approach is that i strongly believe that negative self-talk or harsh self-criticism is a third thing that actually makes an experience linger. Mm -hmm. It's actually the unpleasant feeling goes, but now you're so into the negative self-talk that you're actually perpetuating what feels like the ongoingness of unpleasant feeling.
1: I so agree. And I think that it's so common and it's something that we all jump to in such an instant without thinking. And we just like, we just do it. And I think it I think you're so right that sometimes you can look at it and sort of laugh it off and say, wow, that happened so quickly and I went there. But we're really underrating the impact and the negative impact um, that it has on ourselves. So yes. what can we do? Is it partly about being aware, like you said, making the one choice, being aware in the moment and not laughing it off and kind of self-correcting and almost trying to be more mindful? in the moments in which we feel one of those eight feelings. Yes,
2: definitely. My my thing is use your, uh, so awareness is, is almost always the first step in anything that we do to change and to get better at uh, and to improve or, or what have you make progress. So awareness is the first key. What you want to be aware of is when you kick into that negative self-talk mm-hmm. and use the negative self-talk like you're at a railroad crossing, like it's your warning system. Mm right so here act like the bells are going off or the the red lights are flashing or whatever you use as the signal so the fact that you're engaged in harsh self-criticism is your signal that you're distracting from some unpleasant feeling mm. make it really simple go back to one or more of the eight right right and and then and so it's so the idea is that it's signaling that you're moving away from something that feels Harder to feel, to know, or to bear. So and, in and,
1: that example of him, what could be a learning example from that? He could look at it before saying, or as he's about to say, I am so stupid, and say, okay, I'm embarrassed right now. And how do you correct that? Because all of us have been there where he was. So what could we do in that moment? So
2: as, as he's tempted to do that, right, um, in, in his head, he's, he's going, God, I'm so embarrassed. Um, and then he starts to go the, the next step in terms of the next two lines of idiot and stupid. Right. It's like, whoa, it's like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know what? Embarrassment is hard for me. Right. I don't like to be embarrassed. It's okay. There's nothing wrong. It's okay to be embarrassed. Nothing bad is happening. Everything's cool. Things are safe. Whatever it is that needs to follow from that. But but it would be just a recognition that you're using the harsh of criticism to get away from some unpleasant
1: feeling. Yes. So with those eight feelings: sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration, why is fear not included? Oh, love that question. <laughs> fear
2: is not included is for again, I, there's little sciencey reasons for this. If you look at the way psychology defines fear, mm-hmm. fear is danger in the moment right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And and for most of the people listening or using this material, they're probably not in danger in the moment right
1: now. Right,
2: right. So and and people so people misuse in my mind people misuse and overuse the words fear and anxiety. Yes. So so I have a fear of public speaking. No, you don't have a fear of public speaking. You actually feel
1: vulnerable right. when you do public speak. Right. The, or the sense that you could get hurt. And and maybe shame comes up or vulnerability. Yeah. Exactly. So
2: my thing is don't use the word because it activates the state within your body, Yes, especially if you're not feeling it. And if you're in a situation where there is danger or life threat, hell yes, I want you to be fearful. <laughs> That's the stress response. Yes. Use it and, and act run. On it. Use it and, and run. run. Right. Exactly. Or fight or do whatever yes. you need to do. So, So my thing, fear is not there because I want you to be able to have the fear response when it's appropriate to the event or the situation. Yes.
1: And if it's not, stop using the word. Yes. So true. Such a good point. So you helped us redefine confidence and you spoke about the sort of ponderment you had as a kid of how, how do people cultivate confidence? And now kind of having gone through your own experience of of being bullied and and not feeling like you had an elevated sense of confidence as a child and then doing all the work that you've done now. You know, I'm a mom and, and I do a lot of this research and work too. But from your standpoint, how do you suggest that confidence is is taught to children? Do they innately have it and then things happen like, you know, what you went through or are there certain things that we can help our children um, practical, everyday sense of things we can help our children to do to be more confident. And the first thing that kind of just like comes to my mind and I think about it is modeling and and all the work we do for ourselves and confidence building ourselves in front of our child. I mean, I try to sort of illustrate, obviously not in a place that's that's dangerous to my kid or things he doesn't have to see. But I'm fairly open and transparent with my toddler about my emotions and sort of my process and going through them just to show him. You know, I don't. We don't have. We don't live in a household where sadness or embarrassment or disappointment is kind of like pushed under the rug. We sort of talk right. about it.
2: So part of it is um, helping helping children narrate their experience, mm-hmm. certainly, and 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 for boys in particular, it would be giving them a language for feeling. Mm right? The, it's nat, I think it's much more natural to, to support girls developing that language for feeling. And our, our brains are set up a little bit differently for that. But for boys specifically, then it's helping them develop a language for feeling and making the space for them to have the whole range of feelings and that they learn not to shut down on that experience, but to make use of the experience. So if we go the opposite direction, mm-hmm. girls are not taught to speak up. Mm-hmm. So um, a second way that we develop confidence is to be able to speak with ease. And again, from a positive, kind and well-intentioned place, but being able to speak your truth, to say the things that you need to say, asking for a raise or um, telling a friend that you were disappointed Or meeting somebody new and saying, hey, I loved spending time with you. I'd like to spend more time with you. So that it's not just the unpleasant things in this case in terms of speaking up. It's the positive things as well. And I happen to think if the foundation of my work was not the eight unpleasant feelings, it would absolutely be our capacity to speak up in the world, mm. because I think our ability to speak up in the world actually is like the super glue to confidence. Yes, it makes a huge difference. And the third is our ability to take action. So it would be enc- encouraging kids to go take risks, right? Um, and and that the the goal, if you will, of them taking risks is to. Uh, actually, it, have, deal with stuff when it doesn't work out. Yeah, why? Because then they're dealing with the unpleasant feelings. Then they're dealing with the optimism. Yep. Then they're dealing with the perseverance, and and so they develop the emotional muscle or that capacity to handle unpleasant feelings. Uh, and a uh, fourth is actually accepting compliments.
1: Oh, yes, that's really tough for many of us. Well, I understand
2: that. <laughs> well, but, I, but there's good reason to get good yes, at it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I
1: find that that's tough for. In a lot of the women that I work with, it's tough for us to talk about our accolades and to self-promote and not so not as much for men. It's obviously tough for everyone, but it's mainly more so for women like you suggested. And I think that it's so true. All of these things that we have trouble with, you know, going back into childhood and trying to see about, you know, exposing our children and teaching them to our children early on so that it's really within their framework and... And of course that, you know, has cultural implications and the time in which you grew up. And I'm sure it's different for different generations, obviously, but we know a lot more now too. I mean, we don't know everything, but even we have research to back it up. And so why not start now? That's so true. These are excellent tips. So can you talk a little bit about this idea that you sort of say of outward bound using nature as a medium for personal growth?
2: When I was young, I wanted to be an Outward Bound instructor. There's a a formal program called Outward Bound. It started started in uh, 1959, I think, by a man named Kurt Hahn. And it's experiential education. The idea is that one uses the nature or the outdoors as a medium for personal growth. And when I was actually in high school... I was engaged in a lot of programs that were kind of offshoots of that kind of an idea, and I mean that was that was what I wanted to be initially when i wanted when I was growing up. it's I wanted to be an outward bound instructor, but i was I was guided to also get a college degree, and the only few available programs at that point were master's degree programs mm-hmm. so so I wasn't able to do that, and as a result, I landed in a slightly different area, which ended up being counseling so I went inward bound as
1: a person. Do you um, still use sort of nature as a medium for your own personal growth? Is it important Uh, to you?
2: Personal nurturance, Mm. rejuvenation, replenishment. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And how important is it to sort of channel sadness or some of these other unpleasant emotions through the process of something like journaling? Oh, I
2: highly recommend it. Highly recommend journaling. I really want people to be able to talk through with other people. There's a, a certain kind of growing that happens, a spontaneous learning about ourselves through conversation. I actually believe that we, we, many times we think we know ourselves, but once we start talking about something, we actually come to know ourselves better.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, so, I really think it's very important to engage in conversation, except the journaling is it I wouldn't say it's a second best it's a it's a different avenue yeah and it really allows you to kind of pause and reflect you can get a lot of wonderful things out of journaling so it's a it's a great way to kind of help help you kind of self-regulate in the process so and
1: it sounds like it's you know a great tool for that one choice of awareness
2: absolutely
1: and sharpening that tool so that when you are in that moment it's more readily accessible to yourself because you've been having a practice every day of becoming more self-aware. Yep, yep. I want to talk a little bit before we have to end up, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the power and emotional strength in vulnerability.
2: Uh, So vulnerability kind of uh, goes two different directions, um, or I would say three. One is I think we're, I I talk about in the 90 Seconds book that this idea of non-conscious vulnerability Meaning we're all vulnerable, actually, all of the time. At any given moment, something could happen that changes the, the nature of our trajectory of our life. So that's a vulnerability most of us try to keep at a low level of awareness. Mm-hmm. But if you can, and you can keep it at that low level, then what you do is you actually make choices that help you lean into a much more intentional life because you know that you have a limited amount of time mm-hmm. and, and you're going to try to make the best choices each day to, to live that day in a way that, that is meaningful to you. So low level of awareness of, of this idea of non-conscious vulnerability, this notion that we could get hurt. Mm-hmm. Then, then I talk about a conscious vulnerability and conscious vulnerability is the vulnerability we choose into. And and so meaning I'm going to now put myself in situations where I'm taking risks And that I I could get hurt, I could get embarrassed, I could get sad, I could get angry, I could get disappointed, whatever it is. So whether it's learning a new skill, whether it's asking somebody out, whether it's asking the boss for a raise, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just that I'm choosing to put myself in situations where, in quotes, I could experience one or more of the eight unpleasant feelings. So when you choose into vulnerability, in my mind, that is when you're at your greatest strength. And the key here. Is to understand that you can choose into that strength, into that vulnerability, when you have the knowledge and awareness and belief that you can handle the other seven feelings. Mm. Because those other seven feelings are the most common outcome, undesired outcome of things not turning out the way you wanted if you choose into that risk. So that would be the, the second the part of the vulnerability. The third is somebody that feels vulnerable and then does not, does not speak up. They don't take action and they, they just kind of kind of hold themselves in mm-hmm. and as a result and don't believe that they have the capacity to handle stuff. And those are the ones that it, when we talk about emotional weakness that I would associate with that idea of, of someone that feels emotionally weak. It's that they don't feel like they can handle the eight feelings that are the other seven feelings that are related. So
1: I feel like one of the best ways to know that you can handle the eight feelings is sometimes to reflect on when you felt those feelings before and realize where where you've grown from them and how far you've come and you have been able to work yep. through them. And sometimes yep. in that moment, you know, when you are in that moment of one of those feelings and it feels overwhelming, you know sometimes it might be helpful to think about you know what was a time i felt like this before and right. immediately right. being able to recall something that you're not experiencing now but you did and and how did i work through it because i'm here right. today and then right. knowing that okay this seems like it might be far right now but i i know i can get through it even right. if i don't know how and back to right. that resiliency piece this was so eye opening in so many different ways and i love that you have a formula because oftentimes I think that what is really helpful for people is, you know, there might be a ton of research out there or these notions in which we're starting to understand the brain even more and, and people like you and me who nerd and geek out about it. Right. Um, that That's one thing, but it's another thing to put it through a real practical use and, and help people with being able to really sharpen these tools and resources and I know you talk about this too but this idea that we're talking about resources within it yes. has it's not really about the resources that you you know materially have it's the resources within and again for the people that follow along or have heard some of the other episodes or have heard me speak like I'm really passionate about like helping people sharpen the resources and tools that they already possess. It's yes, already yes. part of them. And I think that you are such a great example in the work that you're doing for that. And all of us, every single human has an experience with unpleasant emotions. And so that's core to all of us. Yeah, yeah, it's what it's something that connects us. Yeah. And the better we can get at experiencing them because the truth is they are there. They're not going away and no. they're not supposed to go away. And right. so, you know, the closer we can get to experiencing them in a way that that we are truly experiencing them and leaning into them, as you say, and, and working, you know, through them. I like that you say, if you if you think and you know that you can handle all eight of these emotions and you have before, then you can pretty much do anything.
2: Absolutely. The premise, kind of the premise of the book is that if you can ride one or more short-lived bodily sensation waves of one or more of eight unpleasant feelings, you can go pursue anything you want in line.
1: And that really means for you guys out there, not that we have to time it, but that's 180 seconds, <laughs> right? <laughs> one or more. No, not even. <laughs> not even because they're usually not.
2: No, because some of the feelings don't even last right. that long. It, really, it's, it's holding to the idea and that takes us right back to the beginning. And yeah. unfortunately, I actually need to, to yes. stop. But um, the, 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 again, it takes us right back to the beginning in terms of the definition of confidence. And it it's the idea that you can handle the emotional outcome. Think eight unpleasant feelings now. You can handle the emotional outcome of whatever you face or whatever you pursue. You've got that, then then really the world opens up to you. And not only is uh, is your capacity to handle unpleasant feelings liberating, in my mind, that along with your ability to speak up Opens you to unlimited possibility.
1: I love that. Okay. To wrap up, the last two things are this is a very fun part for me. I get to ask you, Dr. Rosenberg, what is looking up? What are you excited about? What are you working on? You know, for the listeners out there that liked what they heard and want to learn more, where can they find your work? And what's something you're excited about?
2: Thank you for the intro. Uh, the or the ask they can go to drjohnrosenberg.com. There's a ton of resources there for people, and there's actually downloads. If they there's a PDF download of my easier anxiety book there, if they want to get that for free. The thing I, that's just come out recently is a course on LinkedIn learning on grief, loss and change. Mm. So people are welcome to, to watch that. It's actually, I, it's, I put so much content into that. It's pretty important. And uh, working on an online course as well. So, and the, the thing that, that is looking up for me, my goal really is to get the, the message of this work out there because I know how liberating it is for people.
1: So. In your book too. Yeah.
2: And the 90 seconds. 90 now, seconds. The book is 90 Seconds to a Life You Love. It's how to master your difficult feelings to cultivate lasting confidence, resilience, and authenticity.
1: I love it. The last thing we do to wrap up is every single guest picks a card. Unfortunately, we're not together. So I pick it for you. Um, from my things are looking up optimism deck of cards. And okay. so um, what you didn't know is that this podcast leaves you with a little bit of homework. <laughs> so okay. I'm going to pick the card. Picking you a random card Here's your card. Big or small, without judgment, simply name three things you've done well today.
2: I sent off an important review and email. That's what I did well today. I hope that our interview went well today. It did. (laughs) (laughs) So, and let's see, what else could I do well today? Doing well today would be uh, taking a really wonderful walk outside. So that's that's upcoming.
1: I love that. You know, it it kind of goes all hand in hand with everything we've been talking about. It's so much easier for us to talk about the things we need to improve on, and we very rarely give ourselves the opportunity to talk about just what we're doing well. So thank you so much for coming on. I learned so much from you, and I'm sure everyone else will. And I really appreciate your time.
2: Well, listen, it's uh, it's an honor, and I'm quite grateful. So thank you for both the interest and support, interest in and support of my work. It means a ton to me. So thank, thank you.
1: Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to ThingsAreLookingUp.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.